Well, good morning. I get to say it twice today. How are you guys doing? Doing good, good. Awesome. Well, this is new for me. I'm usually not used to preaching with a podium and a pulpit or whatever you want to call it, so bear with me as I try to find my place here. Um, welcome to the Mountain Church. Uh, my name is William. I'm an elder here, and I have the privilege of, of bringing today's message and uh, just because we know that we have some new people with us today, let me give you guys a little bit of our church history, just real brief. Uh, we, were, uh, we are a church plant, and we uh, launched in 2016 here in Des Moines. Uh, we started meeting at Highline College, and uh, we are able to lease this building from another church in the area that has two campuses, and they uh, graciously allow us to be here in this one. So um, if you want to know more about the church, I highly recommend you t- come talk to myself afterwards or talk to Daniel or our other elder, Nathan, is not here today. He is back home in Michigan. Um, but the website also has great resources about finding out more about the church history. So if you are here with us today, I'm going to give you guys a little background about where we have come from to understand why we are going to start a sermon series out of the book of John. So in our church history, we have kind of, we have always gone through books of the Bible. That is, that's the way we preach. Um, we go through uh, uh, studies of exegetical uh, preaching where we just want to go line by line. What is the text actually telling us and what can we take from that text? So recently, though, we have started to go through um, kind of back and forth, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. And if you were here with us recently, you would know that we just finished um, a, a brief part of 1 Samuel. Now, in 1 Samuel, the, kind of the, the, let me give you guys a little understanding of why we stopped 1 Samuel kind of partway through, and then we are starting this study of John. And I want to put it in this way. Seasons. Everybody know the seasons? Fall, winter, spring, and summer, Right? Well, one of the best ways to think about this is fall. When we think about fall, what do we really think about? Leaves falling off of trees, things dying, decaying, kind of coming down. And what better place to preach out of than the Old Testament, right? Does that make sense to you guys? Right, we see, and what we've kind of seen as we've studied uh, previously books like Judges and moving into 1 Samuel, is that we see kind of the... Uh, scripture's picture of what happens to God's chosen people as they continue to live in this fallen world, in this broken world, and how they continue to just like try and rely on their own strength and want human kings to rule over them, and just kind of all this stuff that happens. We think about the season of fall as everything kind of coming down. It's like a downhill trend. And then we stop in winter because everything kind of just like hits this pause in winter. And like what is happening now because everything kind of freezes and all this kind of stuff. And we took a four-week break, and we started looking at the Advent. And what is the Advent? The Advent is thinking about the birth of Jesus. And this idea that kind of the, it seems like the world just kind of stopped, right? Shepherds stopped what they were doing and came and saw the, uh, the coming king, right? This world, like, it's just kind of, we, we think of like, I think of snow and just kind of that refreshing nature that snow is, right? It kind of coats everything. It clears everything up. And so then from there, we kind of transition out of late winter, which is like where we're at now, and thinking ahead to spring. And what does spring bring? New life, growth, renewal, regeneration, right? 
All that stuff kind of comes with spring. And what better place to look than the Gospels? So we are excited as we enter into this new season, as this season starts to transition, that where we've come from and where we are going, we want to kind of show that in the life of our preaching style as well. And so over the next few years, this is what we are going to be doing. We are going to be going through, when we get back to the fall, we're going to enter back into 1 Samuel, where we left off, and then transition back into the Advent again and back into the rest of the book of John. So is everybody with me? If you have not been here before, if this is your first time, hopefully you feel caught up. Hopefully you feel like you have uh, an understanding of where we're going. And I highly suggest if you want to, all of our sermons are online. Please go back and listen to those if you can. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and jump into the book of John. So if you guys want to open your Bibles with me, if you are unfamiliar with your Bible, you can use the... uh, uh, Index, or not the index, table of contents. There we go. Table of contents. You would think I was a teacher, and I should know that, but I, I, I do not know that off the tip of my hands. That's why I teach math, not language arts. I always say that. So go to your table of contents. You look for it. It is at the beginning of the New Testament. It is going to be the fourth book that you are looking at, the book of John. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of take a brief look at what this book is and why it was written, and we're going to kind of introduce the study that we are going to be doing through the book of John. So just a couple quick things. John was most likely written uh, between 70 AD and 100 AD, so that puts it as kind of one of the later books that we have that was written. It would have been written after the other... the other gospels, and it would have been written after a lot of Paul's letters and, and Peter's as well. Um, and it was most likely written in the city of Ephesus. Now, if you know anything about Bible history, you would know that Ephesus was kind of like the central hub, it seems like, of, of uh, biblical scholars, right? Like you had these great people coming through there, and it really, I wouldn't call them biblical scholars uh, at their time. They were just great men of God. And we had a lot of people coming through Ephesus, so it's, li- it's likely that this book was written there. And uh, before we look at John, we want to understand what John is. John is unique to all other Gospels. It was probably written by the Apostle John, and I'm going to stand by that statement. And if you want to check it, what I suggest you do is you go to chapter 19, verse 35. So if you want to write that down, I'm not going to read it for you. But chapter 19, verse 35, really sets a tone that we believe this is the Apostle John who wrote this letter. So somebody who spent time with Jesus, was in Jesus' midst, was in his inner circle. This This is a person who would have known Jesus intimately, who wrote this book. Now, what makes the book of John different than the other Gospels? What makes it unique? Well, what we know is that the book of John is a book and contains stories of miracles that are signs and wonders that are not found in any other gospel. And what I mean by that is five out of the seven signs. So this book is kind of like centered around these seven signs and miracles that Jesus performs. Five of them are not recorded in any other gospel. So that makes John unique to the rest of the gospels because he's giving us even more that we can see, that we can gain uh, from his book. Now, what I am going to do next is I'm going to ask you guys to please turn with me to John chapter 20. 
Can you please turn with me to John chapter 20? Now, many of you guys can see. I'm going to walk over here, and I'm going to see if I can see it here. If you guys can see up here, you guys see that our sermon title here is Written for Belief, or our, our, our theme for our entire study, I should say, our study theme. And where we get this from is John chapter 20. Now, let me just set up a little bit of understanding of what's happening here. In John chapter 20, as you, you can read your headings there, we just have the resurrection. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus starts appearing to some people, and then we get, uh, we get this story of Thomas, right? And many of us, if we know it, but if we don't, Thomas was doubting. He said, I don't know if Jesus has really risen from the dead. Until I can actually put my fingers in the holes where he was pierced, not going to believe. That's what Thomas says. So Thomas is somebody who followed Christ around, knew Jesus intimately, but when he says that he was going to raise again, he said, not, not until I actually witness it myself. And then we get to the end of chapter 20. And in 27, we're going to start with 27 because I want to set up kind of this theme of what's actually happening here. So in 27, Jesus, then he said to Thomas, we're talking about Jesus, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So what is he telling Thomas? He's like, fine, if that's what you need, go ahead and do that. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Notice he puts a question there. Is this why? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we see this scene and Jesus gives him this, this, this word, right? He gives him this idea that he says, if you have not seen and believed, blessed are you. And then we go into what the crux of what our study is here. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what was the purpose of the book of John? It was written for belief. And as we study what John says and what he goes through, we're going to show that that's what this is all about. The next however many weeks we spend in here until summer, I didn't count, I'm sorry, so I don't know. So however many weeks we spend in here until summer, we are going to be looking at how does the gospel of John point us towards belief in Christ. That makes sense? Everybody following with me? Yes? Okay. For those of you guys who are new, you will know that I am an affirmation kind of guy. It can be negative. That's okay. So if you shake your head at me, I'm not going to be mad. But it's good for me to get some head nods and like we understand we're tracking. So that way I know that I can move on. All right. So what we understand then is that we understand that Jesus, and what we're going to talk about here, this book shows us, is that Jesus is the revelation of God's word. And then from that, John is using written word so that we can believe, okay? So the whole crux of this thing is written around this idea that what Jesus told him at the, or told Thomas and told the, within the disciples hearing, obviously John heard this, 
was that blessed are those who believe without seeing. This is what we refer to as faith, right? The whole, uh, everything that John writes about is about this faith, the belief in the unseen. Now, what I'm going to do next is I'm going to introduce you to what we study and how we study. And what's going to be funny is I'm going to introduce this, and I'm going to kind of expand on this and show you what we're going to do, and then I'm actually not going to use it this week, and I'm going to tell you why. But let's go there first, okay? So what we're going to do is I'm going to see if this fancy thing works here. It does not. So can we go to the next slide? There we go. So we have five questions. These five questions really talk about uh, get at the heart of what we want to believe when we study each text. So when we have these five questions, um, they help us kind of narrow in our focus and make sure we are staying true to what is happening with inside the text. So the first thing that we're going to go to is the first question, which is what does the text uh, say? Looks like I'm working. All right, here we go. What does the text say? Now, really, what we do when we ask this question is we just want to make sure that we are staying true to the text. We don't want to add things in, and we don't want to take it away. We want to look at what the word says. So a lot of times, what does the text say gets answered in things like when Ben stood up here this morning and read the passage of Scripture to us. We want to have that and we want to know it, and we want to be comfortable with it and have seen it beforehand, and so we can understand what the text says so that we can filter everything through this, okay? Which leads us to then the second question, which is what does the text mean, okay? Now, these two kind of go hand in hand, because when we start looking at the text, when we start studying what does John really tell us, and we look through this, we want to be not like Um, I believe it's the Thessalonian church, but we want to be like the Bereans. And what we want to do is after you know the text, you have read it in your Bible, you have seen it, you want to make sure that when we go through and we say, what does this text mean? That we are honoring what the text is saying originally. Does that make sense? So we read what it says. So what does the text say? So that when we get to this piece, what does the text mean? And we dive into those deeper concepts, sometimes looking at the translation and how the Greek works or any of those kind of things, that we know the text firsthand so that we can dive deeper into what it means. Now, out of that, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the next piece, which is going to be question three. Um, And question three tells us how do we naturally resist this text. Now, one thing that we have to know and we have to understand is that our nature by nature, we are not God and we are not like God. So we hear scriptures, we hear truth, and a lot of times our natural disposition is to not believe, unbelief. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have faith in Christ, but we fight these tendencies. We fight these things that that Christ tells us to do because it's not in our nature. And this is where we start to learn about our human nature that wants to pull us away from God's word, wants to separate us from the truths that we hear. Does that make sense? We're following? Sweet. Then that's going to lead us into question four. And question four is kind of one of the important ones and one of the big ones because what we believe here at the Mountain Church is that everything in Scripture points us towards Jesus. Jesus is the hero. So then we ask the question, how is Jesus the hero and how did he accomplish the things that we naturally resist? We put Jesus in our place as the substitute for the things that we naturally resist. He perfectly fulfilled them. 
He lived a life that grants us freedom from those things, from that bondage that we have to sin, that we don't have to live in that anymore. And what that does is after we get to see how Jesus is the hero and how he fulfills it, we get to go to question five. And in question five, it says, how does that empower me to obey what it says and what it means? How do we get to live a life in Christ empowered by the Spirit to do the things that this book teaches and commands? That is the crux of everything that we need to study and need to be looking at when thinking about how do we process through scriptures. Now, one of the reasons we do this whole thing is because one of our jobs is to not only um, preach to you the word of God, but it is also to teach and equip you so that you feel comfortable to study the word on your own because at some point in time, that has to be what we, uh, our, our, our goal is, that you do not come to us thinking that every ounce of teaching has to come from us because if that was the case, it'd be like Paul said, you guys would be still on spiritual milk and our goal is not to be that. Our goal is to be on a big juicy steak of the Bible or if you've ever heard Daniel preach before, a giant plate of nachos of the Bible, right? So, so as we study God's word, this is what we are going to do through the study of John. So if you come, and I, I pray that you continue to come, that you continue to see uh, God's word, that you continue to uh, stay with us, give us a sermon series, uh, follow along, and, and see how we try to honor God's word by sticking to what it says and what it means and finding Jesus as the hero to what we naturally resist, empowering us to live out of that. So what we are going to do, though, today is we are going to look at a passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to use this. Okay, that's going to seem weird, but I'm not going to use this, and I'm going to tell you guys why. So if you guys want to go back to John 1 with me, John 1, 1. I'm going to show you why I kind of don't want to do this with this passage this time. John 1, 1 through 18 is what has been dubbed the prologue. Now, hopefully you guys know what prologue means. It's kind of like the introduction or the beginning to something. If I was to do these five questions, we'd be here till next week, okay? Because there's so much in here. There's so much richness and the problem is, is this was actually set up to be what we know as a prologue. It was set up to introduce the themes and the questions that we have throughout the rest of scriptures in here. And so as we want to honor the text and, and dissect it for what it is, I want to honor that and I want to stay true to that and not try to pull more meaning out of something that is not there. John wrote this first section with a purpose, and so I want to honor that purpose. So what we're going to do is first understand what was his purpose in writing this. Why did he start with a prologue? Some people think it was like a hymn that was of ancient times that he used for his stuff, which is kind of cool to think about, but at the same time robs John of his writings and strips away his authority. So I don't want to go with that. Um, some people think that he, he wrote it, um, that it was written afterwards. We do not believe that. We believe it was part of what he wrote, setting up the whole rest of the book. Now, what I thought about was, how many of you guys here, I'm just kind of curious, I get to admit this, how many of you guys have seen Mary Poppins? Now, I'm a musical guy. I love musicals, okay? And it's awesome that I have two daughters who love musicals as well. 
Okay, and so I get to watch these. Now, what I thought of is as I thought through what John was trying to do here, I thought of the movie Mary Poppins. Now, maybe it's not fresh in your guys' mind like it is mine, and your mind naturally doesn't go there for illustrations, but what I love about the movie of Mary Poppins is the very opening in the credits. In the credits, it's like this four-minute-long section where you get to hear every single song that is in the movie. And like, even in some parts, they start singing words and you're like bouncing along going like, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know why they're singing this, but they're singing it and it's awesome. And you get to see kind of this musical theme that switches from song to song so seamlessly and it points you to what you're going to hear later on in the movie. It almost builds an anticipation going like, oh man, I really like that little bit of that song. I can't wait till that comes up. Right? And it just starts to stir this anticipation of, of watching this movie. And then as you watch it, you finally get to hear those songs and you're like, yes, hum to the lily, hum to the lie, right? Like, <laughs> that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> so I, I didn't have that in my notes. Maybe I should have stuck to it. All right, here we go. So, what we are going to see here is we are going to dive into what we are going to be studying and, and what this prologue does in that same way Mary Poppins does is it builds this idea of the things that we should long for and that we are anticipating with seeing this uh, within this book. So the first thing that it does is it, the first part of, of John introduces us to words that are going to be used throughout the rest of this book. And a lot of these words are pretty indicative to the book of John, and the way he speaks about Christ, and the way he speaks about what Christ did in this world. So some of those words are life, light, witness, true, world, glory, and truth. These words are words that you are going to see throughout the study of John that continue to be repeated over and over again. Then we see some themes that come up. So these central themes are all introduced in these first 18 verses that Ben read earlier. The preexistence of the Son. In him was life. Life is light. Light is rejected by darkness, yet not quenched by it. Light is coming into the world. Christ not received by his own that we are born to God and not of flesh, seeing his glory, the one and only Son, truth in Jesus, and no one has ever seen God except for the one who comes from God's side. These are themes that are going to pop up in these 18 verses, okay, and throughout the rest of Scripture, Right? As we go through John, those are the themes that get laid out in these first 18 verses, which then point us out to him expanding his thesis, that prologue, as we go. All right, so hopefully I did what Mary Poppins did. Hopefully I built your anticipation, so now we are in the text. Is that true? Okay. Well, I'm excited. So we'll go with that. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look. We're going to actually start diving into this text, and I'm going to show you uh, and hopefully show you what, it, what John's ultimate aim was here and what his, the building of his thesis was. So what we are going to do is we're going to first understand what was John's 
uh, style in this prologue. So what we're going to do is we're going to first understand what his style is. So if we look up here, we have chiastic structure. Now, how many of you guys remember back to language arts what chiastic structure is? Notice, I, I put a nice little thing up there for you so you guys can hopefully understand that what happens is you have a, a, a building point where you start with one point, but you don't just start it with that one point, you actually finish with that point as well. And then your next point would be the point above that at the bottom, and it all builds to this central theme or this central point in the middle. So you build A, B, which then gets you to point of C, which is your main point, which then gets you to B and then back to A, which kind of builds upon your central thesis. Okay, so I believe, and I think, I, and this is kind of the thing, I don't know if they actually, I believe they called it chiastic structure at the time, but I believe this is what John is doing. And for us to remember this is our verses are something that was added in later. So it's kind of interesting. I'm going to show you where the verses line up because John wasn't thinking in terms of verses, right? He was thinking in terms of ideas and and building those. So the first one that we're going to look at is we're going to take a look at one, one, or excuse me, chapter one, verses one and two, and how that lines up with verse 18. So it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, who is Jesus, has made him, who is the Father, known. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out here. When we think about this phrase, this is the one that stops people. This is the reason why there are seminary classes taught on the first 18 verses of John. Because we get caught up in understanding why, 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 oh, why did John say in the beginning was the word? Now, what I'm going to tell you right now is if you try and tell me you know why he used word, I'm going to tell you that you're wrong. Okay? And I'm going to tell you because I found that out myself as I studied through a lot of this. There is really no recorded reason why John chose to call Jesus the word. But what we can uh, infer and what we can use is, is cultural context and understanding. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, what we have to understand is that there were some groups of people out there who were thinking certain things. So for the Stoics or, or the philosophers of the time, when they heard the word word or logos, right, in the Greek, what they would think about is they would think about the rational principle in which things exist. So when they hear word, they're thinking about why do things exist? What's the, what's the reasoning behind that? This is why some people like their translation to say, in the beginning was reason. Because it speaks to a group of people who have to hear it in a certain way that might not know who Jesus was. So John is setting up an argument that's saying, in the beginning, before all of time, there was this word. And so they would, start to, they would start to understand in their brain, they would start to think, okay, the, re, the rational principle which all things exist, that's where their mind would go. Now, we understand later that they would be told otherwise of what their natural thinking is and be led to the understanding that the word was Jesus, the man who became uh, or came down and lived with us and walked with us. Now, Jewish prophets, as they read this, or Jewish people, they would think of the prophets because the word of God was how the prophets spoke, right? They would say, they would use phrases like that. Um, They would think about the Old Testament. They would think about 
the law in the sense of, or they would think about the word in the sense of the law, the Torah, which is the, the law of God, would be the word of God because the law was the word of God. So they would already be thinking about some of these things. In the beginning was the law and the word of God and the natural order of things, right? That's how the Jewish audience would start to think about it. There was also these people that floated in between philosophy and Judaism at the time that thought of the idea of the logos of God was the ideal man. Okay, and when they thought about the ideal man, it wasn't an actual person. It was just a concept or an idea, right? And so John is saying, hey, in the beginning, there was this ideal picture, but I'm gonna tell you that the way you're thinking about it is wrong because you say it can never become person. And what I'm going to tell you is that it is becoming person and that it did and that he lived So the word of God is associated, as we read scriptures, with God's powerful activity in creation, revelation, deliverance, judgment, healing, and rescue. So when John chooses to use the word, word, for who God was, who Jesus was, he is essentially telling us that creation, revelation, and salvation comes through the word, and the word was Jesus. All right, so then next. So hopefully I'm, I'm leaving you guys at a good place where you understand we're not gonna dive any more into why he used word. He used word so that it could reach a multitude of audience to draw them in so that they understood his point. They understood what he was talking about, that it was based upon this idea of foundation of the world, based upon this idea that there is a, a moral standard, a, a uh, uh, something, like I said, a, a rational principle in which all things exist, all this kind of stuff, that there is reason for why we are here. And so our next piece, that, or excuse me let, me, let me go to verse 18 real quick. And he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. I wanna go to the, uh, verse 18 and just under, make sure we understand this. In our Amplified Bible, it says, no one has seen God, his essence, his divine nature at any time. The one and only begotten God that is the unique son who is in the intimate presence of the Father, he has explained him and interpreted and revealed the awesome wonder of the Father. I think that that just highlights what verse 18 and kind of what verse 1 is talking about as the word was revealed to us and, and, uh, the word, and, and, God, or excuse me, and Jesus was there before all time. This kind of sets this up and showing us that they, they parallel each other by saying Jesus is the only one who has seen the Father and he came down here to live among us. So then we go to verse three. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in our chiastic structure, he's pointing us to verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what are we seeing here? John is setting up this idea and this principle that nothing was made without Jesus. So nothing was made without him. So even the law in which, the, like as the Jews would have read through this, even the law that we have, the Torah, all of that was given through Jesus. And then what John is pointing to is he's saying also ultimate freedom, the grace and truth that we have comes through Jesus who was there at the beginning. Right? And what I think is interesting in verse three, verse three is really saying 
that, and, and really helps us point to this idea that some people would argue with uh, believers that Jesus was not God, that somehow he was created by God. But what verse three really hits at is that says that that did not happen because it says without him was not anything made that was made. So that would refute the point to say that, okay, if something was made then, and that was Jesus, Jesus was made and then all things were made after him, this verse would be heresy. Does that make sense? It can't be that way if Jesus, if everything was made through Jesus, because if Jesus was made, then that would be lie. So this is pointing us to the idea, and John is setting up a foundational statement in saying that without him was not anything made that was made. He was God. So then verse four and five in him was life. There's one of our first words. And the life was light. Another one of our words that we're high- highlighting. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see that that verse parallels verse 16, and it's up on the screen for you to look at. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So, what is John trying to show us here? In life, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And what is that light and what is that life? It is the grace that is given to us by Christ. Now, one thing I want us to understand is that verse 16 and 17 also do a great job of, of pointing to each other. So when it says, for from his fullness we have received grace, that is talking about verse 17. And when it says upon grace, that is also talking about verse 17. And what I want to do is I want to point to uh, uh, verse 16, and I think I have this NIV translation up here. And I think that this really helps us see it. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So what is that pointing us to? That first grace that he says, that we have received grace. He is talking about the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. That was grace that came in place of the grace that was already given. The grace that was already given was the law in which he gave Moses for us to understand what it looks like to live godly lives, to see what is good and healthy for us to live as, was a grace. At the same time, it was a curse because we could never live up to it. We've studied that before but understanding that even the idea that he would show us what it looks like to have faith in him through the law was grace already given. All right, so then we move on. Verses 16, or excuse me, verse six through eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. That's another one of our words. To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And now if you jump over to verse um, 15, you will see John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John John jumps into this testimony about uh, a, a character in the Bible who is 
uh, a lot of times referred to as John the Baptist. But notice John leaves the Baptist piece out here. And I think there's intent behind that, but we don't need to dive into that because I don't think it, it really uh, helps solidify this text. But what I do want us to understand is that there's a pivotal piece in here in which John, the writer, is showing us how the word, how like a spoken word or a written word is an effective tool to show who Jesus is. And he shows this by saying uh, a couple things. He says that, first of all, he, he points this idea that um, John went and spoke testimonies about who Jesus was. And we see that in verse 15, where he says, I said, and then what John does is when we know his testimony, we know what John preached was that he used words and he used the Old Testament scriptures to help prove his point. So if you want to look later, I suggest looking at Isaiah 40, verse 3, or Isaiah 53, verse 7, to see the things that John, who we call John the Baptist, said about Jesus, which are stuff that is written in our scriptures in the Old Testament. So John is now setting up this idea that there was somebody who came, prepared a way, and used the word of God as his foundation for what he was preaching. Then we move on to verses 9 and 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And that parallels verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." Now, what is this really showing us? This is showing us that John is pointing to this truth, right? He equates the word as the light, the true light, which has come into the world. And he is saying that not only has it come into the world in what we think about in word form, right? As like the Jewish audience would have thought, or as the philosophers would have thought that there was some sort of world here. But now he starts to make this argument and he starts to show, and the word became flesh and dwelt, settled, Take, to take up residence is what dwelt means, right? He was here. He lived here. And then because of that, we now get to see his glory and the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we see this revelation starting to happen. This is the fulfillment of what is being talked about in scriptures. John is pointing us towards Jesus and saying, we have stepped out of the realm of the, wor the word and into a man who lived here, who was not just man, but was God. He was full of the glory of the Father who sent him. And he was full of grace and truth. So then we get to verse 11. Well, let me back up a few seconds, actually. Sorry. So in verse 10, I would also want to just highlight that this is, Paul often refers to this, this idea as the mystery um, in which all scriptures points us towards. When we read the scriptures, the Old Testament, when we read all those things, uh, we don't quite understand, like if we put ourselves in that place, they, they did not see the fulfillment of Jesus at that time. So, but everything pointed forward to this need for a savior, this need for a king, a future reign from somebody who could fulfill all of the law. And so then that points us forward to what he says in verse 11. And verse 11 and 13 are kind of interesting verses to kind of surround and get us to this middle point. 
He said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, which is paralleled by verse 13, which says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John is starting to set up this argument and starting to show us that when Jesus came, the people that he had called, right, were people that he called, that he chose. There was no bloodline. There was no tie in this way that was going to, uh, to be the crux. Because at this time, you would have started to think, as the, Jew, as the Jews read this passage, they would have said that we are the people of God, right? And God came for us. And, what, and, and that's kind of the lineage, right? Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. They were supposed to be the representatives here on earth. And what John is starting to show us is he's saying, listen, those, the people who were called his own, that we would say out loud that were called his own, did not actually accept him when he was here, did not believe him. So what John is doing is he's now casting aside this idea that it's about your blood, that it's about some sort of like thing, like being a child of Israel just somehow makes you accepted in Christ. But he gets at this idea that he says, is not a flesh nor the will of man, but of God. And so now John is really like starting to narrow. I don't know if you guys have noticed, he starts with this broad thing about who God is. Then he starts focusing on, you know, like what, who Jesus was and how he was here. And now he starts to zero in on this idea that it's not about who you were or what you've done or what you were born into, but this other calling about how you were born into one of our themes is that you were born of God. So, but it was because of God, which leads us to this central idea. Verse 12, everything hinges on verse 12. Now I could tell you guys right now that we could break verse 12 up into three parts, but I really think verse 12 kind of explains everything really well about his argument. So when he gets to verse 12, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I believe that John chose his words very carefully here. The first word I want to look at is name, who believe in his name. Now, what does that talk about? That talks about the character of a person or the person themselves. So John's not like just saying the name of Jesus just has authority, like just, some, just like the written name, that's it. What John is really saying is that the person of Jesus Christ has all authority. If you believe in him, believe in who he was, and that includes everything that he did. So when you believe in the name of Jesus, you will have to say, I believe in his life, death, and resurrection. It is not just Jesus was a good guy, so I can listen to some of the things that he says. That is not what John is saying here. He is saying you have to believe in the whole thing. Now he chose some other words very carefully. He gave the right. What does right mean? Authority, power. Where does that authority and power come from? It comes from God. Because what does it say? It says, he gave the right. And then John does something here that is different than what we see in most scriptures. Because John is trying to prove a point in verse 12. 
John says, if, he, if God gives you the right to become children of God. Now, notice what word John uses here and what they translate that as, children. There is a very clear distinction between the word that John uses for children and the word that he uses for Jesus as son. Now, Paul, a lot of times in his writing, uses the same word. But the difference is, is John is trying to highlight something here to make sure that we understand the difference. The difference is, the word that he uses for son here is he puts Jesus as equal with God. He is God. When you are given the power and the authority and the right by God to enter his kingdom, you are adopted into his family. We are not made God ourselves. There is not some sort of like lifting up of who we are in the sense of we are now like better people. We are closer or like we are gods ourselves as some religions would teach. John is laying out a very clear point here. But that point is still a beautiful point. You, even though we are unworthy, we are adopted into God's family. And to me, that's such a beautiful thing that John is highlighting here. So what does this all mean for us? Well, what it means is we have to understand John's way of thinking and his way of teaching, which is going to set up this entire study. So when you hear the messages from Daniel and Nathan later on, you have to view it through this lens. Everything that he preaches and writes down from this point forward hangs on the balance of understanding what he says in verse 12. So what do we see here? Well, we see a couple things. So I'm going to put something up here on the the board. So this would be a teaching that we would see in the world. Justification. Now, if we don't know what justification means, it means to make righteous before God. So you are in right standing before God. So some of the world will teach you that your justification comes through faith and works. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there are even sects of the Christian church that believe this. Okay? When we talk about the Reformation, uh, uh, towards the, even the Catholic church, this was the, this was the hinge point for them. Okay? comes through faith plus works. Now, I would say that there's even more religions in the world that, that would say this. They would say, yeah, you have to have faith, but there's also works. I would even go as far as to say that even people who say they are not religious believe this. Because what do they say? I just have to be a good person. That's works. And you're having faith that that's going to work, right? That's crazy. That's faith plus works. And I'm going to tell you right now, this leaves us longing for something. Because in faith plus works, right, you have to, you have to understand certain things. Like, like I said, even for the non-believers, they have to say, like, I just have to be true to myself. Who is yourself? I teach middle schoolers, and they are trying to find that on a daily basis. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? <laughs> faith plus works just does not work out. I, I, there's this, there's this uh, secular song that I really like where 
this singer, he, he, he builds this whole thing to this point where he says, I'm surrounded by identity crisis everywhere I go. And I'm surrounded by imposters. That's what happens when we have faith plus works, right? We don't know where we're at. We don't know our standing. We continue to try to earn things. Then that builds ourselves up and we start to like go through this like period of, of, of uh, just wondering if we're good enough. And that causes a lot of self-doubt and there is no freedom and there is no rest in that. And the problem is, is that there is a flip side to this one. And that flip side is what we see up here where it says that justification comes through works or it comes through faith minus works. And what this is, is this is kind of like what you see a lot in the American church. Nominal Christianity is what they call this. Which what this is really getting at is saying that there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, it's just by faith alone and you don't have to do anything. There's nothing, there's nothing really that happens. So once you, once you accept Jesus into your heart, then just go ahead and go do what you want to do. All right? Right? Just go live a life. Go do the crazy things of this world. Follow the pleasures of this world. Get as much money as you can. Right? Find fulfillment in sex, alcohol, drugs. Do what you need to do. But, you know, you, asked, you said that prayer. It's there. You get to live now. And what we see is that this really leaves a lot lacking for the transformative power that Christ has in our lives. It really brings us to a place where, best said, God is fire insurance. Keeps us from hell, but we get to make heaven here on earth like living the things of hell. What we think is good. We can have separation from God here because I said a prayer so I can have him in eternity. And I think that that misses the point of what John is really getting at here and what the crux of his whole thing is, is when he says that you are empowered to become children of God. So what does that really say for our faith then? Well, I like this statement here. This is something that Daniel has used before. I believe he got it from somebody else, and I don't know who. Justification is by faith alone, but it is a faith that never remains alone. What is that telling us? That tells us that it is by faith alone that you are justified. You get to stand righteous before God, not condemned, but made holy in his presence because of the work of Jesus Christ. And through that atoning work, that, that work that Jesus uh, uh, died on the cross for our sins, he took the weight of that sin, the weight of that burden. And because of that, we are now free to live. And when we are truly free to live, we will see the word of God for what it truly is. We will see this as commands that are not meant to hold us down, we will not see this as, as rules or guidelines in which to follow, but we will see it as ultimate joy and satisfaction, living a life that shows Christ as the supreme treasure. And it is because of God's work. When we go back and we look at verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the name of Jesus, 
his atoning work, his life, death, and resurrection, he gave the right, he empowers you to become a child of God. And when you are a child of God, you get to see the blessings that come along with that. You get to see the life of fullness and joy and comes in serving. You no longer have to live for self. You are freed from that bondage that we talked about with the middle schoolers, with ourselves, trying to figure out who we are in this world, trying to figure out what our life is supposed to be, trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do from the day to day. We are freed from that burden to live a life that is honoring of Christ that pushes us towards living a life that looks like his. We know that if Christ is our ultimate example of what it looks like to live on earth, we are now freed because of the grace that God has given us through his son, Jesus. I think Paul highlights this really well in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. John understood what Paul was saying at and getting at here. He saw this clearly and was saying, it is a gift from God. It is by grace alone that you are given the right to call Jesus Savior. You are not smarter than somebody else. You are not more intellectual. It is not because you studied way more than somebody else. Your circumstances where you were born into do not dictate how you get to follow Christ. It is by the working of God alone, Jesus calling out to you and your response. So as we study through the rest of this book, my prayer is that we see how John is pointing us towards belief. First and foremost, it is belief in who Christ was belief in what he did, his life, death, and resurrection, and belief that he has ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God with him in perfect unity as the lamb who was slain for our sins to wear the weight and the burden of this life that can cause us so much grief and so much sorrow, that Christ gives us the hope that we have to persevere on and not to have to look to ourselves to be our own savior. It is our grace upon grace that he has given us. We do not deserve it. We have not earned it. It was freely given and it is ours for the taking for who God calls Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for your written word. Father, because faith is not through seeing or witnessing ourselves. Father, so many times I think it would be so much easier if I could just see some of these miracles that I read about in scriptures. But then, Father, what am I truly believing? I'm believing in my own power, my own salvation, my own faith because I'm telling you that I'm only wanting to believe that if I see it. So Father, I pray, rid me 
of my unbelief. Father, help me see the words that you have left here for us, Father, because you were the word at the beginning. Father, help me to understand that, Father, but I pray even more, I hope this congregation to see as we study uh, not only today, but the, the passage to come, Father, that your son lived a life in perfect fulfillment of the law, died a death that he did not res- deserve, and wore the weight of our sin and shame, and then rose again and conquered death, leaving it in his wake. Father, so that I and everyone who believes could live free in him with a belief that points us towards Christ, that points us towards understanding of his word, that helps us fall in love with him even more each and every day. Father, that our lives would be towards Christ, not just with Christ on the side, but with Christ being the central theme and resting in that grace, that eternal hope that we have in his name. Father, we love you and we thank you. Pray this in your name. Amen.